Thank you, Michael, and trust that you've got your Bibles open to that passage in Second uh, Peter 1. We're going to jump into that text in uh, just a moment, talking about the inerrancy of God's Word. Before we do that, uh, there is a marriage retreat coming up in a couple weeks, September 16th through the 18th, Friday through Sunday. Um, Sarah and I are hosting that event, and I'll be teaching for uh, five different sessions on the subject of marriage from the book of Song of Solomon. So the book of Song of Solomon is a spicy book, and um, not something we would normally cover on a Sunday morning for a number of reasons. If you'd like to know why, read the book, you'll see why. And we'd love to have you come and be part of that marriage retreat weekend and just learn about marriage and um, walk through the Song of Solomon together. You can register for that um, today online and in the Next Steps area, they can help you figure out how to do that. So September 16th to 18th, we'd love to have you come. Let's pray now. Ask the Lord to help us. God, here we are with your word opened in front of us, and we want to hear from you. We believe that this word in our laps and in our hands is the means by which you, Christ, speak to us. And so I pray that you would now open our minds and hearts to what it is that you want us to hear. And Lord, for those who are struggling to trust you, to trust your word, to believe it in total or in part, I pray that today you'd give them strength to believe with a new clarity, a new conviction. So help us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Somewhere in junior high, the light bulb came on for me when it, as it relates to the studying of the Bible. My youth pastor had distributed some half-sheet daily devotional guides, and on those half-sheets of paper was a very simple series of questions that helped me enormously as a teenager, and frankly, I still use those questions in various form even today. My, my journal is filled with these three questions, or these answers to these three questions. First question is, what did I read today? Simply write down the text. What exactly did I read? Secondly, what does it mean, taking from the text, figuring out what, is, what does this text mean? And then third, how does it apply to my life? I would, I would commend those questions to you, no matter what your age, to be able just to pause as you're reading the word and get beyond just the, the specific things that you're reading and be able to move that into application in your life. These questions served as a framework to study the Bible, and in my teenage years, my standard diet was to take whatever day of the week it was, so today, August the 14th, I would read Proverbs 14. And it was amazing what I discovered in terms of the Bible's relevance to my life. Now, it didn't happen every single day that something remarkable came out of the text, but Invariably, throughout the course of my reading, there were many, many days when the connection between what I was reading and where I was living was unbelievable. It was like the Bible was walking right along with me. In fact, sometimes even anticipating what I would be dealing with. In the Bible, I, I discovered what God's view was in terms of what was really valuable. I learned how to be able to deal with temptations, the kind of friends that I should pursue, how to, how to think about my parents, 
the, the value of biblical wisdom, and so many other things. And I discovered something that I knew conceptually as a child, but I began to believe it at an entirely different level, and I came to believe this, that the Bible is true. Now, I knew that in my head, and I knew that the Bible was true, but when I was able to see the application of the Bible in my life, I came to appreciate that the Bible could really be trusted. So, when, when the Bible talked about a path that was different than the world, when the Bible talked about a way of thinking that was different than my friends, when the Bible talked to me about what was really valuable, when other things seemed or felt really valuable, I came to believe the Bible more and more, and I believed that I could truly trust the Bible. And this morning what we're gonna talk about is the trustworthiness of that Bible. Last week we dove into the subject of the inspiration of the scriptures, and I asked you whether or not you believed the Bible, whether or not you believed it was authoritative. We're in this series for a couple weeks on why we believe the Bible, and my aim is that you would come to love the Bible more, read the Bible more, memorize the Bible more, talk about the Bible more, obey the Bible more, that you would see that the Bible really has an authoritative basis in your life. What's more, Part of the emphasis this month is to help you take a step towards the Bible in some way, whether that's joining a small group. We have a number of spots that are open for you to jump in and experience what it means to study the Bible in community, which is extremely important. Or maybe to start memorizing the Bible again, or for the first time you could use the fighter verses that we have every week. Or on Wednesday evenings, we have a class that we're gonna be offering in September on how to study the Bible. And then at the end of this month, August 26 to 28, John Piper will be here and he will help us to think through how to read the Bible supernaturally and what is the, authentic, the self-authenticating nature of the scriptures. The goal of all of this is to give you an increasing confidence in the Bible. Now, I mentioned last week, some of you may not have been here, that next week we are going to take a break from this series for one week so I can talk with you about the issues related to ethnicity, authority, and the gospel. It happened again last evening. An officer involved shooting, and then a protest and violence. We live in a volatile culture as it relates to this issue. And I wanna just see what I can do. I'm not gonna solve it, but I wanna try and speak into a few things to help you think biblically about the season that we are in. Last week, the subject was inspiration. From 2 Timothy 3.16, we learned that the Bible is God-breathed, which essentially means that God is the origin of the Bible, and because of that, the Bible is authoritative. I suggested to you that underneath Christianity's perspectives on morality, underneath Christianity's perspective on ethics, on eternal life, on the forgiveness of sins, is the basic issue of the authority of the Bible. But all of those things flow from the content of the scriptures, and since the Bible is from God, it is to be obeyed. To obey the Bible is to obey God. And one of the things that I wanted to press into you last week was this thought as to where your understanding of authority really comes from. In other words, <clears throat> does authority come from within you, 
Or has authority come from outside of yourself? Do you determine what makes things right or wrong? Or does something outside of you determine what is ultimately right or wrong? And the doctrine of inspiration means that there is a foundation of life, and that foundation is rooted in the Bible. And that in troubled times, the followers of Jesus need to be reminded about the authority of the word, that we have an inspired Bible. Today we're taking up the subject of inerrancy. Last week the question was, do you believe the Bible? This week the question is, do you believe the Bible is true? You see, closely tied to the issue of inerrancy is the issue of inspiration. And closely tied to the issue of inerrancy is the matter of authority. Now, some of you may not be familiar with this word inerrancy. What does that mean? It essentially means this. It means that the Bible always tells the truth. Inerrancy means that the Bible tells the truth or that it always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. Now, there's a more technical definition and we need to talk about something. The technical definition is this. The scriptures in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. So inerrancy means that the Bible is without error, and yet you'll hear this definition or this category of original manuscripts. That might strike some of you as odd. Let me explain what this means. Take your Bible, keep your finger in 1 Peter, but go over to Romans chapter 8. You need to know that we have wonderful translations of God's word in our possession today. Unlike, frankly, any other generation, we have more quality translations of the Bible than any generation in the history of the world has ever had. But you also need to know that what you're holding in your hand is an, is an English translation, if you speak English, or some other translation. That is a translation of not just the original, but rather copies of the original. We, we don't have any physical, original manuscripts in possession. And what happened over time is that there were copies made of those original manuscripts and copies of copies, such that there today are thousands of manuscripts or portions of God's word or books of the Bible or fragments which have been collected and preserved since the original writing of the Bible. And while we don't have the original manuscripts, we do have an excellent collection of those manuscripts and such that we could be assured that when you put all of those manuscripts together, we have a very accurate translation of God's word. At the same time, in the midst of the transmission of this text from copies to copies, there were times that a copyist made an error. And you'll see that footnoted in your Bible. So I just want to show you what's, what's here. Look at Romans 8 and verse 1. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you have an ESV, as I do here, you'll notice that there's a footnote after the word Jesus. And if you look down below, it says, Some manuscripts add who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then if you look at verse 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you you free, and there's a footnote, and if you look down, it says, some manuscripts, me. So what happened is that as a, as a copyist was, was, was taking um, 
or making a copy of God's word because a verse sounded like another verse or they thought they remembered or maybe they heard it incorrectly that they, they copied it down and copied it down incorrectly. So you may run into somebody who says, well, there's, there's all kinds of what are called textual variants or all kinds of differences in terms of what the, the Bible actually says or how can you really know that what you have is God's word? Wayne Grudem helps us understand how we can reconcile all of this with the issue of the trustworthiness of the Bible. He writes this. Over 99% of the words of the Bible, we know what the original manuscripts said. And even for many of the verses where there are textual variants, that is, different words and different ancient copies of the same verse, the correct decision is often quite clear. And there are really very few places where the textual variant is both difficult to evaluate and significant in determining the meaning. In the small percentage of cases where there is a significant uncertainty about what the original said, the general sense of the sentence is usually quite clear. And additionally, I would add, no major doctrinal truth is negatively affected by any of those textual variants. Therefore, I believe that we can have confidence that we have an authoritative and trustworthy Bible, not just in the original, but also in what we have even now. In fact, I hope that you're grateful that in your lifetime, there has never been more accurate or widely available translations than what we have today, and never a greater effort to translate the Bible into every language on the planet. In fact, one of our missionary partners is projecting that by the year 2025 that translation projects for every language in the world will have been begun. It's amazing and something we should be thankful for. Now, inerrancy means that the scriptures not only tell the truth, but they do not come from man or come from human interpretation. We'll see this in a moment in 2 Peter chapter 1. Rather, God's word comes from God himself. And since God is holy, and since God cannot lie, since he says that his word is truth, since God always speaks the truth, therefore, if God is truthful, then his word must also be truthful. And if it is true, then the Bible is trustworthy. Now, the clearest and I think most helpful statement about the trustworthiness of the Bible came in 1978. It's something called the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. I would commend it to you, something that you should just read. It'll take you five to six minutes to read the statement. Over 200 evangelical leaders signed the document because they believed that the issue of inerrancy was very important to the trajectory of the church. And that was back in 1978. And that issue of the inerrancy of the scripture and the authority of the word is just as important today. Interestingly enough, in the preface to that statement, here's what they wrote. The authority of the scripture is a key issue for the Christian church in this and every age. Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are called to show the reality of their discipleship by humbly and faithfully obeying God's written word. To stray from Scripture in faith or conduct is disloyalty to our Master. And recognition of the total truth and trustworthiness of the Holy Scripture is essential to a full grasp and adequate confession of its authority. 
So one of the reasons why this matter is important is because how interwoven the issues of authority and inspiration and trustworthiness and inerrancy are when it comes to why we believe the Bible. A Bible that isn't trustworthy isn't authoritative. But a Bible that is trustworthy has sweeping implications. Again, here's another quote from the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. Holy Scripture being God's own word written by men, prepared and superintended by his Spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. So these issues of authority, inspiration, and inerrancy are all linked together. And this is more than just a theological issue. This is more than just things that pastors or seminarians should should think about. This is something that has very specific and important ramifications in your life. Here's what Kevin Young in his book, Taking God at His Word, says. Inerrancy means that the Word of God always stands over us, and we never stand over the Word. When we reject inerrancy, we put ourselves in judgment over God's Word. We claim the right to determine which part of God's revelation can be trusted and which cannot. How are we to believe in a God who can do the unimaginable and forgive our trespasses, conquer our sin, and give us hope in the dark world if we cannot believe that this God created the world out of nothing, gave the virgin a child, and raised his son on the third day? You see, there are things related to the inerrancy of God's word that are linked not just to fundamental doctrinal truths, but are linked to where you and I live every single day. I believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God. I believe that it is absolutely true. I believe that God has spoken to us through the word, and I believe that if God is true, then his word must be true. And if the word is true, then I can believe what the Bible says about the world. I can believe what the Bible says about me. I can believe what the Bible says about the cross. I can believe what the Bible says about the future. I can believe anything that the Bible talks about because it is the word, and I have based my life upon it. Now, On a very practical level, it means that everyday life, in everyday life, the trustworthiness of the Bible is in play. For example, when the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The question is, do you believe that's true? Do you believe that's true when it seems as though humble people lose? When it seems as though humble people are taken advantage of, when it seems as though humble people are treated unfairly. And the question that you have to wrestle with, is the Bible true or not? Am I gonna be humble or not? When the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee sexual immorality. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And when, if you believe the Bible is true, that means that you're going to look around you and you're gonna have to be okay with feeling like you are 
weird from the rest of culture, like you are out of step, or when you are laughed at by your friends because you're committed to purity and sexual activity only in marriage, in that moment, the question is, is the Bible true or is our culture true? When the Bible says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, 2 Corinthians 9a, and that's talking about giving, the question that in this text is, is that true? Which means, will you choose to give financially even though it means that your bank account has less in it than it did yesterday? And so the question that you have to wrestle with, when you give money away, you are banking your life on a more true principle that God is able to give us all sufficiency in all things at all times that I could abound in every good work and I'm gonna bank my life on that, not on the fact that when I put more money in my account, I therefore have more security. And the question is, do you believe the Bible is true? When the Bible says we know that all things work together for good, for those who love God, Romans 8, 28, the question then is when you look at hard circumstances in your life, will you see those circumstances and will you say, somehow this works out for my good, somehow God is using all of this for his divine purposes, I believe it, that's true, or will you say, I gotta understand how this all works out or it's not good. Will you in effect say to God, you have to prove to me why this works. You gotta prove to me and you'll end up getting angry and bitter and what's happening in that moment is you're not only struggling with suffering, you're struggling with the truthfulness of the Bible. So this isn't just some theological issue. When the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5a, and you are in the last, final moments of your lifetime, you better believe in that moment when your last breath is taken that the truthfulness of the Bible really matters. So the truthfulness of the Bible is not some theological or merely theoretical issue all by itself. It is incredibly personal and it is very practical. And yet I would not be surprised that there are a number of you who think something like this. Well, I would believe that the Bible is true or I would believe, I would be more convinced that it was true if I could have had what Peter had, if I could have seen it with my own eyes. If I could hear the voice of God, or if I could hear his message to me in the clouds and look up and it spelled a word and I knew what to go. It said, Iowa, I'm supposed to go to Iowa, take the job, or no, don't marry him. You know what I mean? You wanted to see what it is. And you think, if I could just hear or, or have what Peter had, then, then, then I would believe more than what I believe now. Well, you need to know 2 Peter 1 is written to address that very question. And what we find in this text is this concept that Peter talks about the fact that the word is something more fully confirmed. In fact, 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21 addresses the issue of the trustworthiness in contrast to seeing something with your own eyes, and essentially what Peter says is that the prophetic word is more fully confirmed or is something completely reliable. Last week we were in 2 Timothy, which was Paul's closing words to Timothy. 
Second Peter are Peter's closing words to his group of followers in trying to strengthen their faith and trying to help them as he anticipates his own death. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15. After Peter talks with them throughout chapter 1 about adding to their faith to a number of qualities that they could persevere on and keep growing in their relationship with Christ, after he talks with them in total in the book about the second coming of Jesus, verse 15 says this, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to at any time recall these things. So what Peter wants to do is to strengthen these believers in their faith so that they will continue on in the face of difficulty, persecution, and as Peter anticipates that he's going to be gone. So isn't it interesting that Paul at the end of his life and Peter at the end of his life both anchor their disciples or their followers in the truthfulness and and in the believability of the Bible. So what does Peter tell them about the word? There's three things, three characteristics that relate to the trustworthiness of the Bible. The first is this, Peter tells them that the word, the word more fully confirmed is historical. Verse 16 starts with the word for. It says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So when Peter desires to strengthen them in verse 15, he then talks about his own experience in verse 16. That's why the word for is there. So when you're studying the Bible and you see the word for, that word is there for a reason. It's connected to the previous verse as a proof of what has just been said or an inference of what has just been said. And what Peter wants them to know is the things he has told them are not cleverly devised myths. Why would he talk about myths? Well, because Roman and Greek culture were filled with mythological stories that were an attempt to explain what was going on in the world. You may remember studying this in like seventh or eighth grade. You, the, the, the mythological stories of Rome and gods like Zeus and Poseidon and Aphrodite and Dionysus. This was the Greek and Roman attempt to have a worldview to explain why does the world operate in the way that it does. And what Peter is saying to them is what I have told you are not like those myths. They're not like those explanations, these creative and even deceptive or devised ways of explaining what is going on in the world. What Peter is saying is that the record of Christianity is based not on a myth, but in fact it's based upon history, which is why he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What's Peter saying? He's saying, I was there. It really happened. I saw these events with my own eyes. And then in verses 17 to 18, he describes the transfiguration, the moment when Peter, James, and John were able to see the glory of Jesus, when they met Elijah and Moses, when Peter had this great idea to set up tents and just stay there. I love the account in Luke. Some think that Luke and Peter collaborated in their writing, or at least Luke interviewed Peter, and in Luke's account, it says, and Peter said they should set up tents, and then it adds a little parenthetical thought, but he didn't know what he was saying. And I kind of wonder if Peter was like, hey, 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 I didn't know what I was saying. All right, I'll put that in there for you, man. So. 
Peter was there. He saw the glory of Jesus. Verse 17, he says this, for when Jesus, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter says, look, unlike some Greek or Roman myth, I am not telling you a story. I'm not trying to scare you about the future. I'm not devising some sort of mythological explanation of the world. Jesus was really transfigured. I really heard the affirmation of the Father. I really saw the glory of Jesus. And the biblical record that I'm telling you is straight up true. He reminds them all of this because he wants them to not only be confident in what has happened in the past, but also that the entire message of of the gospel is entirely true and that this same Jesus, who he saw glorified, who he saw transfigured, will one day return. Peter wants them to persevere all the way to the end, and he wants them to be godly. And part of his rationale is, look, I saw him, and he's coming back. So add to your faith virtue. And according to 2 Peter 3, in light of how all these things are going to happen and what's going to take place, what kind of people should you be in lives of godliness and holiness? So Peter's going to link their perseverance and their godliness in light of the fact that he says, I saw him and he's going to come back. So what he does is he links the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of the Bible to present godliness. I mean, this makes total sense. If Jesus really isn't coming back, if he really isn't Lord, and if the Bible isn't straight up true, then why don't we just live like everybody else? Why do all this work to try and confess our sins and resist ungodliness? Why try and remain a pure person in an impure world if it's not legitly true that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords? If that's not true, why not just drink, party, and carry on because tomorrow we die? Peter is trying to sanctify this people, and part of the way that he does is to ground them in the trustworthiness of the Bible. You need to know that when temptations come your way and you're tempted to run with the wrong crowd or fall into a pattern that you know at one level is wrong, it's not just a matter of will you follow the wrong path or will you succumb to a particular temptation. At that point, the question is, is the Bible true or not? Do I really believe that the Bible is true? In fact, some of you, it may be that the reason why you're Christianity either doesn't work or the reason why there's something that's wrong is because at the end of the day, what's happened is you just really don't believe the Bible to be true. You believe parts of it to be true, but you don't believe in total that it's true. You don't believe that Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. You just, you just think he died on a cross to forgive you of your sins, but the implications of that, the truthfulness of the Bible, maybe hasn't fully set in. So it's historical. Now, secondly, and this is the reason why we're using this text this morning, verse 19 makes a very important statement regarding the trustworthiness of the written word. Again, you might think, well, that'd be great. Peter saw it. He saw it. I wish I could have seen it. Look what Peter does in verse 19. 
and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. That's a really important statement. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So he's encouraging them to persevere all the way to the end. The morning star rising in your hearts thing is a reference to Christ's second coming. And a lamp shining in a dark place, how do people live in the midst of a dark place? How do they live as light in that dark place? They need to be assured, according to Peter, that the prophetic word is more fully confirmed. What does that mean? Verse 19, he says prophetic word. Verse 20, he says no prophecy of scripture. And then verse 21, he says for no prophecy. So we see that word prophecy or prophetic word or prophecy of scripture used three different times. So when you combine the word, or the phrase prophetic word with the idea of prophecy of scripture, Peter's point is he is pointing us to not just Old Testament prophecies that were to come true, not just to the Old Testament, he's pointing us to the entire body of the scriptures. In other words, he's talking about the inspired word. He says that this prophetic word is more fully confirmed. The New American Standard renders this as made more sure or the NIV as something completely reliable. What Peter is saying here is something very important. He has told them about his personal experience. He has told them about his eyewitness testimony. He has told them what he saw and what he heard. And his point is this. My eyewitness testimony only confirmed what was already true and trustworthy. Namely, the prophetic Word. Peter's eyewitness account is not to be seen as a better word than the prophetic word. In fact, his experience only served to confirm the trustworthiness of the scriptures. So to think, I would believe if I could see it with my own eyes, it would be much easier to believe if I actually heard the voice of God. Peter is trying to encourage these people as he leaves and says in effect to them, you have something just as reliable as eyewitness experience. You have something more fully assured or something that is made completely reliable. He wants to provide to them a long-lasting assurance of the incredible trustworthiness of the scriptures. One commentator put words in Peter's mouth to help us understand pastorally what he's saying. Here's what he says. Listen to me. I was an eyewitness to the saving acts of God in history, and I know that after Christ's death and resurrection, God will have no need to ever again perform these things in the presence of another generation. But remember, this in no way means that your faith is inferior to mine. We have both been given the prophetic promises of God. We can all read the words written down long ago, and they are a more sure light than anything I ever saw and heard. Beloved, my seeing these things is important. Witnesses are essential, but God does not need to appear in the flesh every 40 or 50 years to enlighten us and confirm his love to us. Seeing isn't essential for believing, reading God's word is. That's his point. 
So for those of you who would say, I wish that God would just speak to me. I wish he would just tell me what to do. I wish he would just talk to me. He already has. It is written. Third and finally, Peter says that this word is supernatural. He's countering one final argument. Some would say, well, because the book was written by men, it can't be God's inspired or inerrant book. True, God didn't drop a book down from the sky. True, human beings physically wrote the Bible. So how can we know it's trustworthy? Peter offers three arguments, beginning in verse 20. First, he says, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, what he says is there are no private interpretations that create prophetic Scripture. The teachings of the Bible may have been written by human beings, but humans are not the source, says Peter. Secondly, verse 21, he reiterates what he says in verse 20 with a particular focus on why interpretations don't create the scriptures. He says, because no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. In other words, prophecy doesn't come from human exertion or from human will or human desire. And third, ultimately where he is leading us is to this last phrase or last series of words, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. To be carried along is an image like a ship blown by the wind. Or some have compared it to a ferry with individual cars on it. Something greater than itself is at work. And that's what Peter's point is. So it is with the scriptures. Human beings... We're writing words on a page, but what they wrote was the inspired and inerrant word. And since it is God's word, it is true. And since it is God's word, it is trustworthy. And the Bible has a supernatural aspect to it because it is the Holy Spirit who was behind the trustworthiness of this book. So what does all of this mean? Let me give you a few thoughts. First, what this means, friends, is that the basis of church ministry, what we do on Sundays, how you order your life, is all based on the authority of the Word. It means that you can trust the Bible. You can bank your life on the Bible, and you can hope in what the Bible says for eternal life even today. And you do well to teach your children to trust the Bible. You do well to help your small group trust the Bible. Because at the end, of the end of the day, the authority of the word is that singular thing that becomes a preserving influence in the life of any person or anybody. For those of you who've been around here, College Park Church for 15 years or more, you know very well that not only one of our core values on the back wall is the authority of the word, but you know the way in which the word preserved this body of believers. I can tell you the story as to why College Park Church should not be here anymore, and yet I believe that one of the reasons that it is here in God's grace is because of a relentless commitment, not to an individual, not to a group of people, but essentially to the lordship of Christ and the authority of the word. 
And I'm telling you, when a people commit their lives to the authority of the word, it does something to them and it provides a safe authority for their long-term growth. People come and go, pastors come and go, but it is the word of God that remains forever. Secondly, the inerrancy of the Bible means that you should study the Bible and you should work hard to study the Bible because the hope for your life and my life and for our church is not in what we think the Bible says, but in what the Bible actually says. Therefore, you have to work hard to understand and know how to study the Bible. You can't just ask yourself, what does the Bible mean, without understanding what the Bible says. And therefore, we have to work hard to accurately and rightly understand and teach and preach the Bible. My authority as a lead pastor doesn't come from my, my title. The authority of even this moment doesn't come from my words on a page. Your ability to grow based upon what I say is directly related with the accuracy with what I say as it relates to the scriptures. So I have zero benefit in your life if what I say doesn't match this book. And therefore, you have every right to graciously, humbly, and critically to examine what I say or any of our pastors say or what anybody says say and say, wait a minute, is that what the Bible says? Let's look at that because at the end of the day, this is the words that give life. On Tuesday of this week, I'll meet as I do nearly every week with a group of guys. We study next week's text. There's been other guys who have helped me even put this message together by throwing me ideas and things of that sort. As a part of that moment, they critique this sermon. They'll tell me what went well, and they'll tell me a lot of what didn't go well. And when I've had guests come in and sit in that meeting, they're like, what in the world? You let people critique and criticize your sermons? And my answer, and I mean this in all genuineness, is absolutely, because the Bible is inerrant, my preaching isn't inerrant. And so when we sit around the circle, sometimes there's guys who are reluctant to share, and I say, look, at the end of the day, I missed a lot, so let's talk about what was missed. Because we are imperfect people, and we serve a trustworthy book. Finally, when you read the Bible, you are hearing the voice of God. As wonderful as, or as helpful as you think it might be to hear God speaking to you or to have some kind of audible encounter with him or some kind of supernatural cosmic intervention in your life, you are able to hear the voice of God through the scriptures. And so here's my challenge to you. You need to love the Bible. You need to read the Bible. You need to memorize the Bible. You need to study the Bible. Because when you do, you hear the voice of God in the scriptures. This is the word of God. When the scripture reader says that on Sunday and says this is the word of God, that's not some kind of little trite thing that we're saying. We're acknowledging what I've just read is the word of God. Kevin DeYoung says this, there is no more authoritative declaration than we find in the word of God, no firmer ground to stand on, no more final argument that can be spoken after the scripture has spoken. You do not need another special revelation from God outside the Bible. You can hear, you can listen to the voice of God every day. Christ still speaks because the spirit has already spoken. And if you want to hear from God, go to the book that records 
only what he has said. Immerse yourself in the word of God. You will not find anything more sure. We believe the Bible because the Bible is true. Let's pray. I wonder today if in some area in your life trusting the Bible has become difficult. Maybe it's that your heart today is cold, your reading is distant, and you just need to be reminded again that this is true. Or maybe some part of the Bible It's just very difficult for you to believe. And today, maybe you just need to acknowledge that before the Lord and to say, God, I'm asking you for faith to believe, to believe your word. There'll be some folks up here afterwards who would love to pray with you, strengthen your faith. Father, I pray that you would help us to be the kind of people who believe your word, who understand that you have spoken, who will now order our lives in light of the scriptures. Thank you that there is forgiveness when we stray. Help us to believe. Help us to believe the Bible. pray this in Jesus' name.